So in this final talk that I'll be giving on this retreat, I want to explore the idea of enthusiasm. I prefer enthusiasm to the more commonly used effort. Um, in English, at least, when someone says, you know, make an effort, try harder, that often prompts within us maybe some, some behavior we might have had at school or at home where we sort of grit our teeth and tense our muscles and push ourselves to succeed. Now, such a, an attitude is clearly, I think, uh, incongruous with a practice that's telling us to relax and to be still and to breathe and to pay attention, uh, to experience a kind of, you know, pleasant, agreeable, um, calm state of mind. How do you make an effort when at the same time you're being told to be still and quiet? Enthusiasm, I feel, solves some of that problem. I also like the word enthusiasm because of its etymology, where um, the word literally means to be filled with God to be entheosed. Um, <clears throat> there used to be a Protestant movement called the Enthusiasts in the 18th century, and a, a Christian minister friend of mine always chuckles on remembering a gravestone of a vicar of a church that uh, um, resisted this movement, where it says the Reverend John Smith served this parish for 40 years without enthusiasm. <laughs> but enthusiasm also suggests something that you, uh, you're kind of uh, drawn to do. We would say, for example, that football supporters are enthusiastic. Uh, they don't get up in the morning and say, oh no, I've got to go to a match this evening. <laughs> They're enthusiastic. They don't have to make an effort. And this, I think, is a useful way to make that distinction. They do it because they love doing it. And as we'll see, I think this is very much at the heart of what it means to practice this rather grim phrase, right effort. Let's call it, or let's think of it, as cultivating enthusiasm. But it's all very well to encourage enthusiasm. The question that immediately comes to mind is, well, how do you do that without gritting your teeth, tensing your muscles, forcing yourself to do something you don't really want to do? And the answer to this question lies, I feel, very much at the heart of what is perhaps particularly distinctive in the Buddha's teaching, and that is the principle of conditionality, or sometimes translated as conditioned arising, sometimes dependent origination, sometimes even contingency. So we have this very famous uh, statement we find in one of the suttas where uh, it's a Sariputta speaking and he's quoting the Buddha and he says, the one who sees conditionality, conditioned arising, sees the Dharma, and the one who sees the Dharma sees conditionality. In other words, um, Dharma equals conditionality, just as we saw in the last talks how dharma equals nirvana. And in the oldest account, according to scholars, that we have of the Buddha's awakening, uh, it describes, or the Buddha describes his experience as one in which he came to see two things, conditionality 
and nirvana. And both of these are understood as the Dharma. So we've, we've spoken about nirvana as really being the, the absence or the suspension of greed and hatred and confusion. And to understand effort or enthusiasm, it'll be perhaps more useful to think in terms of conditionality. So let's look at a couple of ways in which conditionality is uh, described. Perhaps the most uh, succinct statement we find is where the Buddha says, when this is, that arises. When this is not, that does not arise. Again, it sounds very simple. It is very simple. But it cuts right to the heart of the Buddha's approach to life. In other words, it's not about um, you know, trying to impose something, a belief or a, or a mystical experience or something. It's about creating the conditions in your life that will then give rise to what it is that you might be aspiring for. And so if you seek, for example, to cultivate compassion, you don't grit your teeth and say, I am going to be compassionate. You consider the suffering of others. Um, you, 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 you do certain contemplative exercises, and by creating those conditions, then compassion, in a sense, is just the natural outcome of, um, of what you've done. So it's about reorganizing our lives in such a way that <clears throat> qualities and virtues that we aspire to are in a sense given a fertile soil in which to grow. There's something quite organic about this process. And likewise for those uh, qualities of mind that let's say that you, see, you, you, you would rather did not arise, like greed or fear or whatever, Again, you don't suppress them or tell yourself, I shouldn't feel this way because I'm a meditator. But you create the conditions, you reconfigure your life and your thoughts and your feelings in such a way that um, these negative mind states like fear are less likely to happen. So it's about, this is why the practice really extends to everything you do. It's about considering how you speak, how you behave, how you work, how you relate to other people, all of these things become conditions <clears throat> that are conducive to the arising of certain virtues and to the non-arising of others or of negative states. We find this same idea expressed in a line of Nagarjuna. He's a second century CE, in other words, after Christ, uh, Indian philosopher, a very key figure in, in Buddhist thought, and he concludes his chapter on awakening where he, where, by, by saying, the one who sees conditionality sees dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, and the path, which of course refer to the Four Noble Truths, if you wish, but in the language we're using here, understanding conditionality is what helps you understand and see how embracing dukkha leads to a letting go of reactivity, how a letting go of reactivity allows you to see the stopping of reactivity, and seeing the stopping of reactivity opens up a space in which a way of life can begin to emerge, the Eightfold Path, that is not determined or conditioned by reactivity. So again, it's the same, very much the same idea. Now, this um, principle is then explicitly applied to the idea of virya, effort, enthusiasm, however we translate it. 
And there are considered to be four great efforts. Um, some of you are probably familiar with these, others not, but I'll go through them. So the first great effort is to create conditions for reactivity not to arise. So you can see this is precisely how the Buddha frames effort is in terms of creating conditions, in this case, for reactivity not to arise. So this raises the whole question, okay, under what, you know, how would I live in my life in such a way that greed and hatred or confusion would be less likely to come forth? That's the first effort. The second effort is to create conditions for the letting go of reactivity. Um, I maybe need to just qualify this a bit. The, the original Pali is, is rather wordy and repetitive and cumbersome. Surprise, surprise. And they don't say reactivity or tangha. They say um, <clears throat> unskillful states. Akusala dhamma, unskillful states of mind. But I'm going to use our language here of reactivity. So the second effort, and again, we might already be thinking, well, effort maybe is not quite the right word, to create the conditions that will allow reactivity to be let go of, for it to somehow subside and fade. The third great effort, and again, this follows very much from the last two, to create the conditions for skillful qualities to arise. In other words, to find a way of life, uh, to cultivate certain uh, perceptions and understandings and reflections that will in themselves support the arising of uh, skillful qualities. And the fourth great effort is to create the conditions uh, for the maintenance or the, the continuity of skillful qualities. Okay, so it's quite clear, I think, how this is being approached in terms of the underlying principle. You create the conditions for reactivity not to happen. You create the conditions uh, for the letting go of reactivity. You create the conditions for the arising of skillful states and you create the conditions for the maintaining or the development of skillful states. So far, so good. But, and I guess we're probably all puzzling over this, what are these conditions that we are to create uh, for these things not to happen? Now, somewhat um, untypically here, I'm going to uh, part company with the Pali Canon and uh, look at a much later Mahayana work called the Bodhicharyavatara, the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, written in about the 8th century by an Indian Buddhist uh, monk poet called Shantideva. And he devotes the seventh chapter of this work, which is translated many times into English. You can look it up if you wish. Uh, chapter 7 of this book is uh, entitled Effort or Enthusiasm. And what I like about Shantideva is that he's a poet. And he has a great uh, skill in explaining these ideas by drawing upon very potent uh, imagery, poetic imagery. And the writing itself is it's in verse. Um, and it has a certain uh, beauty to it, I feel, that communicates these ideas very well. So Shantideva, just like the Buddha, also understands how effort slash enthusiasm is something that arises when certain conditions are in place. But what he does, that is not so explicit in the early texts, is he identifies of four of these conditions, four conditions under which enthusiasm can be cultivated. So he, he, he takes the step of going from the principle, 
create these conditions and this will arise, to actually spelling out what four of these key conditions might be. And, but first of all, he offers us a definition of enthusiasm. And he says the, uh, the enthusiasm is uh, finding joy in what is skillful. Finding joy in what is skillful. So again, this has a sort of, this harmonizes more with the idea of enthusiasm rather than effort. It's something joyous. It's something we, we are naturally drawn towards. Um, you might think of it maybe as, as having a certain passion for the examined life, a certain passion for uh, leading a good life. There's something in it that's not forced. It comes from our heart. It comes from our soul. It's what we are most deeply called upon to do. And he, co he compares it to uh, the wind that fills the sails of a ship. And he says, just as there is no movement without wind, so goodness does not occur without enthusiasm. So it's the kind of moving force that uh, fills our sails and, in a sense, moves us forward in our lives. So he's defined what he means by the term, and then he sets out what the four, what, what he understands, and this is quite unique to Shantideva. I don't think there's any uh, previous discourse or sutta uh, where we find this teaching, but it's very clearly stated in Shantideva. He says there are four things that we need to cultivate to allow enthusiasm to naturally emerge. The first is aspiration. Aspiration. What is it that we aspire to in our lives? What do we most deeply uh, long for in terms of uh, how we seek to live as human beings? What are our goals in life, our deep goals? What really matters for us? To think about that, to reflect on that, and to try to make that quite conscious and clear in one's mind. I'm going to go through each one with some of his verses, but I'll just list all four first. The second quality is self-confidence. Um, in fact, the word he uses is the word that's usually translated as pride, mana. So, I'm sorry, um, self-confidence. And the word he usually uses uh, is pride. The word he uses is, is, is the same word for pride. I'll come back to this. But um, to be enthusiastic for him means to have cultivated a certain confidence and trust in one's abilities. The third quality is joy. In other words, we've already mentioned this, this, uh, this joyous engagement with our lives. And the fourth quality is rest. In other words, knowing when to stop. That's also a condition for enthusiasm, which again goes against our idea of gritting our teeth and pushing ourselves on. No, part of this process is actually knowing when to stop. So let's look at some uh, of uh, the verses that he uh, uses to illustrate these four qualities. Now, when he comes to aspiration, in other words, what we most deeply aspire for in our lives, he, he puts the question back yet another step, and he says, well, what is it that actually uh, crystallizes our understanding of what it is that we really want? And this, for him, as in many Buddhist uh, teachings, comes down to an awareness of death. And to contemplate the fact that death is certain, that it could occur at any time, is to quite seriously 
recognize the condition we are in as mortal beings. Something that intellectually, of course, we all know about, it's not any great news, but in this practice, it's very helpful to consciously bring to mind the, um, the transitoriness, the temporary nature of our time here on earth. We tend to have a kind of uh, intuition that we're going to be around you know, for at least a while yet. Um, but actually we need to question that. And again, this is not the point to go into long reflections on death. But for Shantideva, if we really knew intuitively in our bodies that this might be our last day on earth, then we would live differently. Uh, our priorities would then become much more apparent. What really matters would then rise to the surface of our minds. We'd probably drop a lot of petty, trivial stuff that very often preoccupies us. And we'd be much more focused on what we really want to do. So aspiration, in other words, aspiring to a goal, is revealed um, by reminding ourselves of our temporary status on earth. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Shantideva addresses a lot of this text to himself. He says, Do I not see that death is slaughtering my species? Whoever remains soundly asleep is like a buffalo with a butcher. And again, the image is really you know, like the cows in the fields around here. They sit there or stand there chewing the cud and the farmer comes along and every day will lead one of them out of the field and take them to the slaughterhouse. But the other cows just keep on chewing the grass. Um, they don't realize what's going on. And um, he says that's a bit like us, human beings. People die every day. People we know, people we don't know, and yet we just carry on doing the equivalent of chewing the grass. So death is, as it were, a kind of a, a wake-up call uh, to, to just try to picture our lives in this way. that Every day, someone somewhere, whether we know them or not, is being led off to the abattoir. So it's, it's a sobering thought. Then he continues, Having blocked off every path, death is on the prowl. How can you enjoy food or delight in falling asleep? Ha-ha. So again, this is very sort of, you know, it's slightly ascetic, monastic perhaps, this rather, you know, daunting image, um, which is, on the one hand, somewhat unsettling, but on the other hand, undeniably true. Uh, the, the death has blocked off every path. In other words, there's no escape in the end. Whichever path in life or you take, death will get you in the end. There's no safe place. And if you really knew that, your life would be infused with a degree of urgency and you know, you'll still eat and sleep, but it's less likely that you'd spend a huge amount of time indulging in these pleasures. So this comes down really to what we might call getting in touch with our vocation, getting in touch with what really calls us most deeply in our lives. And this gives rise to a much more conscious motivation to uh, live as we would really like to live. Self-confidence is the next one. And again, this is not a virtue that is often um, heralded uh, in Buddhist texts, um, particularly since Shantideva is using the word mana, which we usually take to be a very negative state of mind, pride, conceit, self-importance. 
But he's recognizing here how actually if we are to embark on this project of living our lives genuinely according to our deepest values, that requires a fair degree of confidence in our ability to do it. And we may find on a retreat like this, for example, that we may come in with the best intentions, but we often find ourselves overwhelmed by sleepiness, distractions, and so on and so forth. And um, we might even lapse into a kind of self-deprecating, you know, I'm just not cut out to do this. This is way too difficult. Maybe I'll do something more interesting. It's, it's quite easy to sort of become despondent and to to sort of lapse into a, a sense of inadequacy, perhaps. So, again, the question is, well, how do you cultivate this self-confidence? And Shantideva uses um, imagery, poetic imagery, to communicate this, rather than sort of a, an exacting analysis of, of conditions. He says, if I find myself in a crowd of afflictions or reactions, I shall endure them in a thousand ways. Like a lion among foxes, I will not be disturbed, sorry, I will not be affected by this disturbing host. So this has got to do very much with our own self-image. Um, it has to do with assuming a, uh, a, 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 a posture, a stance, vis-a-vis, -vis, in this case, the crowd of afflictions, which is really a poetic way of saying being assailed by endless negative, you know, reactive kind of thoughts and feelings that are often overwhelming us or threatening to overwhelm us. And to assume the posture of a lion rather than a fox. Now in Indian, in, 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 in Indian mythology, the fox or the jackal is often considered to be the most sort of lowly of creatures, whereas the lion, as in our culture, is the king, is the most powerful animal whose roar the Buddhist texts often say, uh, frightens all the foxes. So this is a really an encouragement to uh, cultivate a very positive self-regard, to recognize that, yeah, we have the capacity to do this. There are people in the past, examples living today, perhaps, uh, that can inspire us to assume such a, an ambition ourselves. He even says at one point, he says, we should use self-confidence to overcome self-importance. Now, in the original text, we should use pride to overcome pride. But of course, he's not meaning the same thing in both instances. And I've translated that as, we should be self-confident in being able to overcome our self-importance. The danger is that we take self-confidence out we throw out that baby with the bathwater of pride and we assume a kind of a, a full modesty, um, which is sometimes quite popular in spiritual circles, uh, thinking of ourselves as very humble and lowly and so on. But this is actually pointing in a very different direction. It's actually saying, no, you know, be confident that you can do this. There's a beautiful text that follows um, where, again, he's using animal imagery. He says, when, when crows find a, a dying snake, they behave as if they were eagles. When I see myself as a victim, I am hurt by trifling failures. When crows find a dying snake, in other words, Again, the crow is a bit like the fox. It's not a particularly dignified bird. But when a crow sees a, a snake that's already injured or dying, then it will pounce on it. If it's a very, you know, fully alive 
cobra, the, the crow will steer well clear of it. So in other words, um, if we, as it were, behave like a dying snake, in other words, we feel powerless, we feel uh, somehow wounded, um, unable to do much, then our greed and hatred and all of these things that we're working against will, as it were, you know, dive in onto us, will overwhelm us that much more easily. When I see myself as a victim, I am hurt by trifling failures. If I have a very low image or a negative image of myself, then the smallest failure, you know, someone criticized something I've said or um, whatever it might be, can hurt us very deeply. And uh, we probably all know this experience. We get an email that says something about something we've done that is not very pleasant to hear, and then we spend the rest of the day in a funk, uh, you know, endlessly going over this and feeling sorry for ourselves. This is what he's getting at. If you have a, 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 a negative image of yourself, then you will be that much more prone to these emotions um, which will then really bring you down and keep you in a kind of a slight depression uh, or sort of constant anxiety or sense of worthlessness. So in other words, the way that we, we imagine ourselves, the way we picture ourselves, has a considerable consequence on how we come to terms with you know, powerful feelings and emotions and the criticisms of others or difficulties we face in life. So all of this, I think, has to do with uh, cultivating a much more positive uh, self-image. So this is the, so, so far we've seen that you know, if we did think of ourselves more in that way, it would be far more natural to engage with more difficult tasks. We would feel the confidence in ourselves to do that. And if we had, are clear about what the goal of our life should be in the light of our death, then this will further focus our energies uh, towards the actual realization of those goals. The last two things he doesn't say a great deal about, to be honest. And again, he uses uh, just imagery to convey what he means. Uh, there's something very clear in his understanding of enthusiasm is that there is something joyous about it. It makes us happy. It, may, it, it thrills us to do these things. And he compares that like... Uh, to um, being like a child yearning to play. The bodhisattva is drawn to whatever needs to be done. He never has enough. It only brings joy. And perhaps, you know, on this retreat, we've come into this room not thinking, oh no, another 45 minutes sitting, but actually thinking, wow, I'm really looking forward to this. This is a... And that, I think, is what is really meant here. This uh, uh, joyous, rather than sort of, this joyous engagement with this practice, rather than feeling that it's a kind of an obligation. I have to do it because it says so on the schedule, or because I, whatever reasons. But I think it's important when we do find ourselves engaging with this practice in a way that... Uh, it becomes really something of great uh, joy for us to really register that. Uh, and you can't obviously, you know, deliberately come in here and say, right, I've got to be joyful now. That's not going to work. But once again, if we bring into mind our motive, our goals, if we have a, a greater confidence in our abilities that hopefully would be strengthened by the more practice that we engage with, we actually start experiencing the results of the practice. That reinforces again our, our sense of ability, our capacity to do this, and also it is something that 
you know, really means something in a way that is felt as uh, a very positive, uh, joyous experience. Another image he uses, in order to complete the task, I shall venture into it like an elephant tormented by the sun plunges into a lake. <laughs> so here is a, it's almost a sense of relief, an overheated life, an overstressed life. Um, like an elephant tormented by a hot sun finds relief by plunging into a pool. So you feel, ah, oh, I can settle again. I can be still again. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I find when I come to a place like this, especially after having done a lot of work, I'm very tired, I'm very busy, um, there is a sense sometimes of coming into a quiet, serene, uh, welcoming space with others of like mind that does have a sense of a great relief. Um, so that too is a quality, I feel, that characterizes uh, this enthusiasm. And finally, rest, knowing when to stop. He says, when my strength declines, I should stop in order to continue later. Having done something well, I should put it aside with the wish to do what will follow. So clearly, this acknowledges that our practice, uh, be it meditation or study or whatever, um, will always be determined to some degree by our physical strength, you know, our stamina. Some people have enormous stamina, they can just keep on going, others less. As we get older, our stamina might decline, and all of that needs to be taken into account. Not to think that there's some kind of model that we have to copy and um, then to force ourselves to do things when actually we're worn out and we're tired and we really need to rest. Then that's the thing to do. And that is not copping out of the task. It's actually restoring ourselves uh, in a way that will allow our forces to uh, be recovered so that we can then move on. And I think in our culture where there's so much pressure to perform and to, <coughs> you know, not to be seen to be an idler or lazy, sometimes we override our actual uh, abilities and we drink more coffee and we push ourselves and we run on nervous energy perhaps. But here... I think there's a very clear recognition of the need to recognize our limits, to recognize our capacity, and to know when it's time to just stop, to rest, to go for a walk, to have a nap, uh, or whatever it might be. So that, this is Shanti Deva's take on the conditions that uh, would generate would give rise to what we call enthusiasm. And again, I, I, it seems to me quite inappropriate here to persist in using the word effort. It just doesn't work. Um, enthusiasm is better, but I'm not totally persuaded it's the best term in English, but it's maybe the best we've got. So what we've seen so far is that the principle that underlies the practice of enthusiasm is that of conditionality. To create the conditions under which these four efforts, as they're called in the early tradition, um, are more likely to come about. So to go over that again, to create the conditions for reactivity not to happen, to create the conditions for letting go of reactivity, to create the conditions for the arising of skillful qualities, and to create the conditions for maintaining or developing those skillful qualities. Now, 
What that reminds me of, uh, and then this is something that only struck me quite recently, is that these four efforts look like another version of the four tasks, um, which is to embrace dukkha, or suffering, life, to let go of reactivity, to see the ceasing of reactivity, and to cultivate a path. And if you think about it, that maps very neatly onto the four efforts. To create the conditions for reactivity not to arise, I would argue, is identical to embracing suffering. If we really embraced and comprehended um, fully the condition we are in, birth and sickness and aging and death, um, if we really took that to heart, then that perspective on life would be one in which greed and hatred and self-centeredness and all these things would simply not be prone to arise. An example of this might be um, when we attend a funeral and we find ourselves in the presence of bereavement uh, of others who are likewise experiencing that loss. We may literally be standing around a coffin or at a crematorium or something. And what I find always quite moving in those situations is that a lot of the pettiness and chatter of the habitual mental states we have kind of falls away. Something greater has come into our awareness and we find ourselves with people who otherwise we may not particularly like much, but we don't have the same reactions. We come, death has somehow brought us together and allowed us for a short while at least uh, to regard each other as human beings who likewise have been born and will be subject to death as the person in the coffin. It suddenly brings into our experience both individually and communally a quality of greater depth, of greater seriousness. And reactivity is somehow no longer such an interesting or, uh, or, 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 or meaningful thing. It might arise habitually, but we're not going to get caught up in, I, really, I never liked Aunt Jane. God, she's a bitch. Or whatever it might be. Aunt Jane is another suffering person. To create the conditions for the letting go of reactivity. And again, the second of these tasks is exactly the same word in Pali. Uh, pahana. To let go of reactivity. And the conditions for the letting go of reactivity are in fact a much more wholehearted engagement with life in the raw. That once we see the world that way, these conditions uh, will lead to reactivity falling away. To create conditions for the arising of skillful qualities. Well, this goes back to what we've been speaking about in the last couple of talks. Namely, that when this reactivity somehow dies down, or we are able to be with it in a way that we're not driven by it, that opens up this nirvanic space in which we no longer seek to cause harm to ourselves, to cause harm to others. It opens up the possibility of an ethical life. So again, it's the same idea by... Uh, by create, th this would be the practice of creating conditions for the arising of skillful states. In this case, the Eightfold Path. And the fourth effort is to create conditions for the maintaining of skillful states, which is another way 
I feel, of uh, cultivating the path itself, bringing into being uh, a particular way of seeing the world, thinking about it, speaking, acting, working, and so on. So if we look at these four efforts in this way, refracted, as it were, through this fourfold task, um, we find that enthusiasm, therefore, may simply be what arises when we commit ourselves to embrace life fully, to let go of reactivity, to see the stopping of it, and from that stopping, the cultivation and the emergence of a path. So when we think of the four truths as four tasks, then the tasks, the engaging in the tasks, is precisely what are the conditions that lead to a greater commitment to, a greater enthusiasm for, a greater joy uh, in this practice. Okay, that's all I really want to say. Um, again, I've done it quite well. Only one minute over time. A um, few minutes for questions, short questions, if there are any. Yes, au fond? Okay, could you speak up a bit? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sure that's true. And Can you summarize that? Because I couldn't hear it. Oh, you couldn't hear it. Well, basically, I think uh, Mike was saying that we live in a society, in a workplace, in our culture, that really doesn't um, encourage uh, the sorts of ideas that we're talking about here, particularly the, the need to rest, the need to stop, the need to not feel driven the whole time. Is that right? Very, very, very briefly. Um, yes, good, okay. Yes? As a quick addendum to that, a program I saw with Joan Bakewell on Alzheimer's disease, it appears that later studies show that lack of sleep induces this because during sleep in the folds of the brain there is a liquid present that solidifies and makes the flaps, whereas the right quantity of Oh. oh, good. Okay. But I think going back also to both of these things, um, there are two approaches, I think, we, that we might draw from your comments. Um, one is that, okay, we need to somehow adapt ourselves, maybe according to these clever Buddhist methods, so that we can function better in the system. The other, the other point, which I think is a more serious one, is is the system we live in of consumerist capitalism one that is, uh, cannot really function without this degree of stress and strain 
an urgency. Is the problem actually a systemic one, given our whole Western way of life, this increasingly globalized lifestyle, is inimical to these kinds of uh, practices? I think the, you know, just taking more time out to go and just breathe deeply or something, that may not really get to the root of the problem. Yeah, John. Mm-hmm. At what point in time do you, like, are you perpetually, uh, your goals perpetually evolve? Because, I mean, that's the thing, you might start doing this because you want to mm-hmm. you know, be more relaxed in the mm-hmm. situation, but then you might realise that actually you, you know, your goals are changing. I think that's... I think that's true, and, uh, I, I, and that's one of the things I'm a little uncomfortable with in certain forms of religion, like Buddhism, where they set the goal, you know, the goal is to attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings or whatever it might be. Um, more importantly, I think, through the practice, we are constantly reconsidering what the goals of our life should be, and they may evolve and change with our own understanding and learning, And they might move, and I hope, and I think this is actually a very important point that we need to, you know, particularly at the end of a retreat like this. Is it just about achieving my own personal goals of becoming happier or more relaxed or joyous or whatever that could be seen as a very self-centered kind of thing? Or will our, as we become more empathetic, as we become more open to the suffering of others, um, to the system, to the planet, would that not then affect a consideration not, uh, of a goal that's not just to do with me or even my group of peers and friends, but has to do with how I respond uh, to the conditions of society, the conditions of the environment, um, and to extend my goals uh, to you know, work with issues such as that, you know, social injustice and so on. I would like to think that this model of starting with embracing suffering may start here with me, but if it's to be fully realized, it needs to extend uh, to wider and wider to social and other issues in the world, which will constantly then challenge us to rethink what we mean by our practice, what it is that we give ourselves to do in the course of this life that renders our life meaningful. So yes, I see it very much as goals as constantly evolving. The back, yeah. Visual. Well, the word is a visual word, yes, seeing or beholding. Um, it's a little bit off the topic here, so I'll, 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 I'll offer some thoughts on it tomorrow morning in the instruction. Yeah. My reflection was more about the difficulty of the, uh, the second of the Shanti Devi's uh, conditions. Self-confidence. Well, that kind of unflinching courage of your conviction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But are you true to your goals at any one time? That's very, very difficult, it seems to me, to accomplish. Yeah, I think it is. And um, I would hope that um, as we uh, pursue this kind of practice, uh, that that doesn't just give us uh, maybe deep insights into things, but actually uh, somehow constantly affirms and deepens our commitments to what we value. And once again, we come back to this idea that at the core of this is ethics. And if we think of ethics as, you know, ethics comes from the Greek word ethos, which means something like character. An ethical life is actually leading a life in which we aspire to become the person we... 
we aspire to become the per uh, we seek to become the person we wish to be. And I think that happens, I think we do that anyway, although we may not quite think of it to ourselves in that way. But if we take the ethic, which again obviously has to do with goals, it has to do with uh, having the confidence to realize one's goals, it has to do with an enthusiasm for those goals, uh, it has to do with balancing our lives so that we can optimally apply ourselves, we're back very much to what Shantideva and the Buddha are talking about. But yes, I agree. I think that finding the courage of our convictions is easier said than done because we've got so much pushing us in other ways. We've got you know, society saying, oh, you've got to make sure you've got enough for when you're old and you've got to make sure you do this and that and the other. Uh, and our parents and all manner of forces are somehow in a sense, pulling us away from that sort of courage, the willing, you know, the ability to really take risks in our lives, the ability to change our lives. That's not, again, easier said than done. Yes, Annette, and then we'll have to stop. So, um, uh, Shanti Davis, um, idea, and I think a lot of it goes to reflecting on death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we, if we really, really understood that we were going to die, really live that way, mm. Well, yeah, that's true. And this, I think, is why uh, the, the, the Dharma is often described as something that goes against the stream. It's counterintuitive. It's uh, um, asking us to live in a way that our conditioning basically you know, is not interested in. And we find this in meditation. You know, sit down, watch your breath. Oh, I can do that. And you find out how incredibly difficult is it because everything within you is sort of saying, don't do that. Remember what you did last week or what you're going to say to your friends when you get home. The, so the point is, if you just took the reflection of death in isolation, without any kind of ethical framework or spiritual framework, then yeah, it could be very depressing. But... Um, my sense is when you do these practices of reflecting on death um, and you take them seriously and you do it over a sustained period of time, um, it actually has the paradoxical consequence of making you that much more alert and uh, aware of the fact that you're alive. See, the tr when you deny death, you're actually denying life in a way. Death denial is really a, a way of somehow not really experiencing the extraordinary fact that you're alive. And I think this thing Sean was talking about, the courage of our convictions and so on, uh, I'm not saying you have to think about death every minute of the day, that would be unrealistic, but if you do start to meditate, reflect, bring to mind and value these kinds of ideas, it begins to seep in. It begins to have an effect on how you feel about yourself and others. You become much more heightened to your sense of the, of the, uh, of the, of the temporary nature of everything. And that is not a negative thing. It's actually a condition that brings out the beauty of life, or the wonder of life. Uh, because you know it's just, it's here a moment, it could be gone in the next. And if we did know that, I think it would really change the way we relate to ourselves, relate to others, and would force us, perhaps, if we have the framework, to consider, okay, then what really does matter in my life? Then we're back to aspiration, motivation, and what we've been talking about this evening. Quickly... Uh -huh. Remember friends as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. <laughs> as I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. Oh, thank you. That's marvellous. Thank you. And a very good note to end on.
Thank you. <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll meet again here in about 15 minutes. Thank you.